Twelve Years a Slave Solomon Northup Chapter 11 After a long sleep, sometime in the afternoon, I awoke, refreshed, but very sore and stiff. Sally came in and talked with me, while John cooked me some dinner. Sally was in great trouble, as well as myself, one of her children being ill, and she feared it could not survive. Dinner over, after walking about the quarters for a while, Visiting Sally's cabin and looking at the sick child, I strolled into the madam's garden. Though it was a season of the year when the voices of the birds are silent and the trees are stripped of their summer glories in more frigid climes, yet the whole variety of roses were then blooming there and the long, luxuriant vines creeping over the frames. The crimson and golden fruit hung half-hidden amongst the younger and older blossoms of the peach, the orange, the plum, and the pomegranate. For in that region of almost perpetual warmth, the leaves are falling and the buds bursting into bloom the whole year long. I indulged the most grateful feelings towards Master and Mistress Ford, and wishing in some manner to repay their kindness, commenced trimming the vines and afterwards weeding out the grass from among the orange and pomegranate trees. The latter grows eight or ten feet high, and its fruit though larger, is similar in appearance to the jelly flower. It has the luscious flavor of the strawberry. Oranges, peaches, plums, and other fruits are indigenous to the rich, warm soil of Avoyel. But the apple, the most common of them all in colder latitudes, is rarely to be seen. Mistress Ford came out presently, saying it was praiseworthy in me, but I was not in a condition to labor and might rest myself at the quarters until Master should go down to Bayou Boeuf, which would not be that day, and it might not be the next. I said to her, to be sure I felt bad and was stiff, and that my foot pained me, the stubs and thorns having so torn it, but thought such exercise wouldn't hurt me, and that it was a great pleasure to work for so good a mistress. Thereupon she returned to the great house, and for three days I was diligent in the garden, cleaning the walks, weeding the flower beds, and pulling up the grass beneath the jessamine vines which the gentle and generous hand of my protectress had taught to clamor along the walls. The fourth morning, having become recruited and refreshed, Master Ford ordered me to make ready to accompany him to the bayou. There was but one saddle horse at the opening. All the others with the mules had been sent down to the plantation. I said I could walk and bidding Sally and John goodbye, left the opening, trotting along by the horse's side. That little paradise in the great pine woods was the oasis in the desert, towards which my heart turned lovingly during many years of bondage. I went forth from it now with regret and sorrow, not so overwhelming, however, as if it had been given me to know that I should never return to it again. Master Ford urged me to take his place occasionally on the horse, to rest me, but I said no, I wasn't tired, and it was better for me to walk than him. He said many kind and cheering things to me on the way, riding slowly in order that I might keep pace with him. The goodness of God was manifest, he declared, in my miraculous escape from the swamp. As Daniel came forth unharmed from the den of lions, and as Jonah had been preserved in the whale's belly, even so had I been delivered from evil by the Almighty. He interrogated me in regard to the various fears and emotions I'd experienced during the day and night, and if I'd felt at any time a desire to pray. 
I felt forsaken in the whole world, I answered him, and was praying mentally all the while. At such times, he said, the heart of man turns instinctively towards his maker. In prosperity, and when there is nothing to injure or make him afraid, he remembers him not and is ready to defy him. But place him in the midst of dangers, cut him off from human aid, let the grave open before him, then it is in the time of his tribulation that the scoffer, an unbelieving man, turns to God for help, feeling there's no other hope or refuge or safety save in his protecting arm. So did that benignant man speak to me of his life and of the life hereafter, of the goodness and power of God and of the vanity of earthly things as we journeyed along the solitary road towards Bayou Boeuf. When within some five miles of the plantation, we discovered a horseman at a distance, galloping towards us. As he came near, I saw that it was Tibeats. He looked at me a moment, but didn't address me, and turning about, rode along side by side with Ford. I trotted silently at their horse's heels, listening to their conversation. Ford informed him of my arrival in the pine woods three days before, of the sad plight I was in, and of the difficulties and dangers I had encountered. Well, exclaimed Tibeats, omitting his usual oath in the presence of Ford, I never saw such running before. I'll bet him against a hundred dollars. He'll beat any nigger in Louisiana. I offered John David Cheney twenty-five dollars to catch him, dead or alive, but he outran his dogs in a fair race. Them Cheney dogs ain't much, after all. Dunwoody's hounds would have had him down before he touched the palmettos. Somehow the dogs got off the track, and we had to give up the hunt. We rode the horses as far as we could, and then kept on foot till the water was three feet deep. The boys said he was drowned. Sure. I allow I wanted a shot at him mightily. Ever since, I've been riding up and down the bayou, but hadn't much hope of catching him. Thought he was dead, certain. Oh, he's a cuss to run, that nigger is. In this way, Tibeats ran on, describing his search in the swamp the wonderful speed with which I'd fled before the hounds, and when he'd finished, Master Ford responded by saying, I'd always been a willing and faithful boy with him, that he was sorry we had such trouble, that according to Platt's story, he had been inhumanely treated, and that he, Tibeats, was himself in fault. Using hatchets and broad axes upon slaves was shameful, and should not be allowed, he remarked. This is no way of dealing with them when first brought into the country. It'll have a pernicious influence and set them all running away. The swamps will be full of them. A little kindness would be far more effectual in restraining them and rendering them obedient than the use of such deadly weapons. Every planter on the bayou should frown upon such inhumanity. It is for the interest of all to do so. It's evident enough, Mr. Tibeats, that you and Platt cannot live together. You dislike him and would not hesitate to kill him, and knowing it, he'll run from you again through fear of his life. Now, Tibeats, you must sell him or hire him out, at least. Unless you do so, I shall take measures to get him out of your possession. In this spirit, Ford addressed him the remainder of the distance. I opened not my mouth. On reaching the plantation, they entered the great house, while I repaired to Eliza's cabin. The slaves were astonished to find me there, on returning from the field, supposing I was drowned. That night again they gathered about the cabin to listen to the story of my adventure. 
They took it for granted I'd be whipped and that it would be severe, the well-known penalty of running away being 500 lashes. Poor fellow, said Eliza, taking me by the hand. It would have been better for you if you'd drowned. You have a cruel master, and he will kill you yet, I'm afraid. Lawson suggested that it might be Overseer Chapin would be appointed to inflict the punishment, in which case it wouldn't be severe, whereupon Mary, Rachel, Bristol, and others hoped it would be Master Ford, and then it would be no whipping at all. They all pitied me and tried to console me, and were sad in view of the castigation that awaited me, except Kentucky John. There were no bounds to his laughter. He filled the cabin with cachinations, holding his sides to prevent an explosion, and the cause of his noisy mirth was the idea of me outstripping the hounds. Somehow he looked at the subject in a comical light. I knowed they wouldn't catch him when he run across the plantation. Oh, de lord, didn't Platt pick his feet right up, though they? When them dogs got where he was, he wasn't dar. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, de lord mighty. And then Kentucky John relapsed into another of his boisterous fits. Early the next morning, Tabeets left the plantation. In the course of the forenoon, while sauntering about the gin house, a tall, good-looking man came to me and inquired if I was Tabeets' boy, that youthful appellation being applied indiscriminately to slaves, even though they may have passed the number of threescore years and ten. I took off my hat and answered that I was. "'How'd you like to work for me?' he inquired. "'Oh, I'd like to very much,' I said inspired with a sudden hope of getting away from Tabeets. You worked under Myers at Peter Tanner's, didn't you? I replied I had, adding some complimentary remarks that Myers had made concerning me. Well, boy, he said, I've hired you of your master to work for me in the big cane break, 38 miles from here down on Red River. This man was Mr. Eldritt, who lived below Ford's on the same side of the bayou. I accompanied him to his plantation, and in the morning started with his slave Sam and a wagon load of provisions, drawn by four mules, for the big cane, Eldritt and Myers having preceded us on horseback. This Sam was a native of Charleston, where he had a mother, brother, and sisters. He allowed, a common word among both black and white, that Tabeets was a mean man, and hoped, as I most earnestly did also, that his master would buy me. We proceeded down the south shore of the bayou, crossing it at Carey's Plantation, from thence to Huff Power, passing which we came upon the Bayou Rouge Road, which runs towards Red River. After passing through Bayou Rouge Swamp, and just at sunset, turning from the highway, we struck off into the Big Cane Break. We followed an unbeaten track, scarcely wide enough to admit the wagon. The cane, such as are used for fishing rods, were as thick as they could stand. A person could not be seen through them the distance of a rod. The paths of wild beasts run through them in various directions, the bear and the American tiger abounding in these breaks, and wherever there's a basin of stagnant water, it's full of alligators. We kept on our lonely course through the big cane several miles when we entered a clearing known as Sutton's Field. Many years before, a man by the name of Sutton had penetrated the wilderness of Cain to this solitary place. Tradition has it that he fled thither, a fugitive, not from service, but from justice. 
Here he lived, alone, recluse and hermit of the swamp, with his own hands planting the seed and gathering in the harvest. One day a band of Indians stole upon his solitude, and after a bloody battle, overpowered and massacred him. For miles the country round, in his slaves' quarters and on the piazzas of great houses, where white children listened to superstitious tales, the story goes that that spot, in the heart of the Big Cane, is a haunted place. For more than a quarter of a century, human voices had rarely, if ever, disturbed the silence of the clearing. Rank and noxious weeds had overspread the once cultivated field. Serpents sunned themselves on the doorway of the crumbling cabin. It was indeed a dreary picture of desolation. Passing Sutton's field, we followed a new-cut road two miles farther, which brought us to its termination. We had now reached the wild lands of Mr. Eldred, where he contemplated clearing up an extensive plantation. We went to work next morning with our cane knives and cleared a sufficient space to allow the erection of two cabins, one for Myers and Eldred, the other for Sam, myself, and the slaves that were to join us. We were now in the midst of trees of enormous growth, whose widespreading branches almost shut out the light of the sun, while the space between the trunks was an impervious mass of cane, with here and there an occasional palmetto. The bay and the sycamore, the oak and the cypress, reach a growth unparalleled in those fertile lowlands bordering the Red River. From every tree, moreover, hang long, large masses of moss, presenting to the eye unaccustomed to them a striking and singular appearance. This moss, in large quantities, is sent north, and there used for manufacturing purposes. We cut down oaks, split them into rails, and with these erected temporary cabins. We covered the roofs with the broad palmetto leaf, an excellent substitute for shingles, as long as they last. The greatest annoyance I met with here were small flies, gnats, and mosquitoes. They swarmed the air. They penetrated the porches of the ear, the nose, the eyes, the mouth. They sucked themselves beneath the skin. It was impossible to brush or beat them off. It seemed indeed as if they'd devour us, carry us away piecemeal, in their small, tormenting mouths. A lonelier spot, or one more disagreeable, than the center of the big cane break, it would be difficult to conceive. Yet to me, it was a paradise, in comparison with any other place in the company of Master Tabitz. I labored hard, and oft-times was weary and fatigued, yet I could lie down at night in peace and arise in the morning without fear. In the course of a fortnight, four black girls came down from Eldred's plantation, Charlotte, Fanny, Cressia, and Nellie. They were all large and stout. Axes were put into their hands, and they were sent out with Sam and myself to cut trees. They were excellent choppers, the largest oak or sycamore standing but a brief season before their heavy and well-directed blows. At piling logs, they were equal to any man. There are lumberwomen as well as lumbermen in the forests of the south. In fact, in the region of the Bayou Boeuf, they perform their share of all the labor required on the plantation. They plow, drag, drive team, clear wild lands, work on the highway, and so forth. Some planters, owning large cotton and sugar plantations, have none other than the labor of slave women. Such a one is Jim Burns, who lives on the north shore of the bayou, opposite the plantation of John Fogelman. On our arrival in the break, 
Eldret promised me if I worked well, I might go up to visit my friends at Ford's in four weeks. On Saturday night of the fifth week, I reminded him of his promise when he told me I'd done so well that I might go. I had set my heart upon it, and Eldret's announcement thrilled me with pleasure. I was to return in time to commence the labors of the day on Tuesday morning. While indulging the pleasant anticipation of so soon meeting my old friends again, suddenly the hateful form of Tibeats appeared among us. He inquired how Myers and Platt got along together and was told very well, and that Platt was going up to Ford's plantation in the morning on a visit. Po po sneered Tibeats. It isn't worthwhile. The nigger'll get unsteady. He can't go. But Eldret insisted I had worked faithfully, that he'd given me his promise, and that, under the circumstances, I ought not to be disappointed. They then, it being about dark, entered one cabin and I the other. I could not give up the idea of going. It was a sore disappointment. Before morning I resolved, if Eldret made no objection, to leave at all hazards. At daylight I was at his door, with my blanket rolled up into a bundle and hanging on a stick over my shoulder, waiting for a pass. Tibeats came out presently in one of his disagreeable moods, washed his face, and going to a stump nearby sat down upon it, apparently busily thinking with himself. After standing there a long time, impelled by a sudden impulse of impatience, I started off. "'Are you going without a pass?' he cried out to me. "'Yes, master, I thought I would,' I answered. "'How do you think you'll get there?' he demanded. "'Don't know,' was all the reply I made him. "'You'd be taken and sent to jail where you ought to be before you got halfway there,' he added, passing into the cabin as he said it. He came out soon with the pass in his hand, and calling me a damn nigger that deserved a hundred lashes, threw it on the ground. I picked it up and hurried away right speedily.' A slave caught off his master's plantation without a pass may be seized and whipped by any white man whom he meets. The one I now received was dated and read as follows. Platt has permission to go to Ford's plantation on Bayou Boeuf and return by Tuesday morning. John M. Tibeats. This is the usual form. On the way, a great many demanded it, read it, and passed on. Those having the air and appearance of gentlemen whose dress indicated the possession of wealth, frequently took no notice of me whatever. But a shabby fellow, an unmistakable loafer, never failed to hail me and to scrutinize and examine me in the most thorough manner. Catching runaways is sometimes a money-making business. If, after advertising, no owner appears, they may be sold to the highest bidder, and certain fees are allowed the finder for his services at all events, even if reclaimed. A mean white, therefore, a name applied to the species loafer, considers it a godsend to meet an unknown negro without a pass. There are no inns along the highways in that portion of the state where I sojourned. I was wholly destitute of money, neither did I carry any provisions on my journey from the Big Cane to Bayou Boeuf. Nevertheless, with his pass in his hand, a slave need never suffer from hunger or from thirst. It's only necessary to present it to the master or overseer of a plantation and state his wants when he'll be sent round to the kitchen and provided with food or shelter, as the case may require. The traveler stops at any house and calls for a meal with as much freedom as if it was a public tavern. 
It's the general custom of the country. Whatever their faults may be, it is certain the inhabitants along Red River and around the bayous in the interior of Louisiana are not wanting in hospitality. I arrived at Ford's plantation towards the close of the afternoon, passing the evening in Eliza's cabin with Lawson, Rachel, and others of my acquaintance. When we left Washington, Eliza's form was round and plump. She stood erect, and in her silks and jewels, presented a picture of graceful strength and elegance. Now she was but a thin shadow of her former self. Her face had become ghastly haggard, and the once straight and active form was bowed down, as if bearing the weight of a hundred years. Crouching on her cabin floor and clad in the coarse garments of a slave, old Elisha Berry would not have recognized the mother of his child. I never saw her afterwards. Having become useless in the cotton field, she was bartered for a trifle to some man residing in the vicinity of Peter Compton's. Grief had gnawed remorselessly at her heart until her strength was gone. And for that, her last master, it said, lashed and abused her most unmercifully. But he couldn't whip back the departed vigor of her youth, nor straighten up that bended body to its full height, such as it was when her children were around her, and the light of freedom was shining on her path. I learned the particulars relative to her departure from this world from some of Compton's slaves, who had come over Red River to the bayou to assist young Madam Tanner during the busy season. She became at length, they said, utterly helpless. For several weeks, lying on the ground floor in a dilapidated cabin, dependent upon the mercy of her fellow thralls for an occasional drop of water and a morsel of food. Her master didn't knock her on the head, as is sometimes done to put a suffering animal out of misery, but left her unprovided for and unprotected, to linger through a life of pain and wretchedness to its natural close. When the hands returned from the field one night, they found her dead. During the day, the angel of the Lord, who moveth invisibly over all the earth, gathering in his harvest of departing souls, had silently entered the cabin of the dying woman and taken her from thence. She was free at last. Next day, rolling up my blanket, I started on my return to the Big Cane. After traveling five miles at a place called Huff Power, the ever-present Tibeats met me in the road. He inquired why I was going back so soon, and when informed I was anxious to return by the time I was directed, he said I need go no farther than the next plantation, as he had that day sold me to Edwin Epps. We walked down into the yard, where we met the latter gentleman, who examined me and asked me the usual questions propounded by purchasers. Having been duly delivered over, I was ordered to the quarters and at the same time directed to make a hoe and axe handle for myself. I was now no longer the property of Tibeats, his dog, his brute, dreading his wrath and cruelty day and night. And whoever or whatever my new master might prove to be, I could not certainly regret the change. So it was good news when the sale was announced, and with a sigh of relief, I sat down for the first time in my new abode. Tabit soon after disappeared from that section of the country. Once afterwards, and only once, I caught a glimpse of him. It was many miles from Bayou Boeuf. He was seated in the doorway of a low groggery. I was passing in a drove of slaves through St. Mary's Parish.